Um, good morning, church. It's great to be with you all here. Um, my name is Josh Smith um, for uh, any Grace Fellowship people, and weirdly, if any Valleybrook people haven't met me yet, <laughs> um, I'm Josh, and uh, I am Pastor Brian's youngest son. Um, I'm a graduate from Moody Bible Institute with a theology degree, and um, after I graduated, I started preaching at Valleybrook um, for a few months on and off. Um, and then we had this transitional time uh, coming to here. And so uh, this is my first opportunity to preach in front of both of these congregations. So I'm just grateful for the opportunity that we as the body of Christ can gather and just look at God's word uh, and let, have it just flow over us and change us. Um, so for if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've been walking through the Gospel of John. And we know in the beginning... Um, John is introducing Jesus to us as the word, that he both, both was with God and was God. And um, through that, we know that he is fully God and fully man into one person. And so that was what our introduction was. That's what we first talked about. And then we kind of talked about the outline of the rest of the gospel of John. We know about John the Baptist as a person, and then we are told um, and we understand that the rest of the gospel will go through seven different signs that point to a greater reality of who Jesus is. We know him as a character. We know him um, as God. But how do we know him deeper? How are we supposed to know who he is? What does this mean that he is God and man? And that's what the gospel of John does. And so last week, we looked at the first sign that Jesus does. He goes to a wedding and he turns water into wine. And so we looked at that and, and what that tells us about Jesus and his relationship with his mother. And we uh, looked at different aspects about that. And this week, um, we are in the second half of John chapter 2. And this is the second sign to happen in the gospel. And what is different about this sign, though, than all the other ones is that this actually isn't a miracle. Nothing supernatural happens in this text. So... Not, not something that displays power. However, it is still labeled a sign in the gospel because a sign doesn't have to be something that supernaturally happens, but it is something pointing to a greater reality. And so that is what we are going to be looking at today. So my title of the sermon, A Biblical Theology of Temples. Now, when you read that, I need you to contain your excitement. I know a lot of you are really pumped right now. But we're not a Pentecostal church, okay? Just stay in your seats, calm down. I promise it won't get too wild. Um, but what I wanted to do today, looking at this scene here, is to understand what the sign is. We need to gather a bigger understanding of what the temple is. This is the scene. You've heard the story of Jesus. He goes to the Temple Mount. There are people selling... Um, oxen and pigeons at the temple, and he flips tables. So we, we know of this story. We've heard it really out of context. But to understand the sign and the deeper reality within this story, I think what we need to do is take a biblical theology of the temple. And so I want us to both look at the Old Testament meaning, what a temple was supposed to be to the Israelites, the, the reason God had ordained it to be um, their way of worship and interaction with God. And then we can look at what is happening here. Why is this such a big thing that's happening? Why is Jesus reacting the way that he is? And what is he saying about himself? 
And then thirdly, some of you, when you read this, some verses might be coming to mind of where, where do temples pop up in the Bible? And you know that Paul later um, in his epistles, he writes that we ourselves are temples. And so I want to touch on all these different areas so hopefully we can walk away uh, with a full theology of what is happening here. Sound good? All right, nice. So let's start by just taking a look at the text here. I'm going to read from up here because uh, I want to keep up with the slides. So John chapter 2, verse 13 through 22, if you want to open your Bibles to there. The passage says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus then answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So, Similar to what was happening at the wedding in Cana, we are getting a scene of Jesus here, and it's definitely going to be displaying a reality about Jesus. But as we know, nothing supernatural happened, and there's more to unpack than just an event because there is dialogue, and Jesus is actually telling us a reality about himself. He is calling himself the new temple. But for us as modern day readers, we might think that's kind of weird. Why is he calling himself a temple? And what does that mean? What was the temple there for? Um, we might relate it to, um, pay, to pagan religions even use temples and they do sacrifice. So what is the meaning here behind the temple? And why is it important that Jesus is calling himself the new temple? Um, so first to give us context of what's happening. If you remember at the beginning, it said that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And so um, for, the, for the Jews in ancient Israel, they were declared for three times throughout the year to gather at the Temple Mount. One of those was during Passover, and then the other two was the Feast of Booths and Pentecost. So three times of the year, you got to go and you got to make the journey to the temple and follow uh, what God has commanded you to do. So both, this is why Jesus is going, but also for the merchants who are selling, they know this is going to be a bustling town right now. There's going to be a lot of people coming in and out. A lot of people are going to need sacrifices. This is a great business opportunity. So I'm going to set up shop here, and I'm going to start selling some sacrifices. So this is what we would have in our heads as readers of knowing that's what's going on. We're at Passover. There are sellers, and that's why Jesus is going. So... Having all of that in mind, let's take a step back into the meaning of the temple into the Old Testament. So actually, this is the second 
um, second temple that Israel has had. The first temple was built by King Solomon and had stayed for hundreds of years until um, Israel had fallen and was taken by Assyria and Babylon. And when Babylon came in, they destroyed the temple. And then um, the, as the Jews had slowly gone back into the land, they rebuilt the temple. And this is the second temple now. But all the same meaning is there that was original. All the, all the laws that were given are brought into this new temple. And the point of the temple is that it was God's dwelling place among his people. And so if you remember in Exodus, the, the Jews were in slavery into Egypt and God had brought them out of slavery. And while they were making their way to the promised land, they were walking with a tabernacle. It was like a portable temple. And it was in the tabernacle that they would do their sacrifices and they, they would worship. And it was where God would dwell among his people while they moved around. But then once they made it into the promised land, then they were allowed to build a temple. And under Solomon's reign, they built the temple. And what the temple served to do was to be the place where God would be with his people. So there was the, the outer layer of the temple, which anyone could walk around in. And then there was a inner courtroom where men were allowed to go into. And then through that, there was another like inner portion where only the priests of Israel could go, the tribe of Levi. And then amongst those priests, only one of them, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies. There's the Holies where the priests are and then into the Holy of Holies. And separating the two was this massive curtain. It was like 50 feet tall or something. I forget the, the exact measurements, but it's this massive thing separating. And it very much gets this understanding that as you get closer to the presence of God, you are entering into a holy place, that this is not to be taken lightly. And the temple was solely built around that idea that you are being brought into holy divine presence. And so the temple is to be understood as a holy place. And um, in Ezekiel 43, 12, uh, it reads that this is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on the top of the mountain will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. So the, the temple was made for that reason. But the reason it's holy is because that is where the dwelling place of God is. So if he's going to be there, you have to make it presentable and worthy for him to be in that presence. So the, the temple itself is holy. But another thing that the temple does is it orients all of Israel in their culture to be central around God. They're, all their laws in the Torah and everything that is given to them as a society and as a culture are to be oriented around the temple because it is a holy place and it's where God is. And so when other pagan religions or other cultures look at Israel, they would see these people are focused on the God of that temple and what that God wants. And so the temple is telling both of itself it is holy, but it is also telling of the heart of Israel and what they are focused on. So when you understand this background of what the temple is, and now you enter into this scene of Jesus is going to the temple, and there are people on the holy ground selling and making a profit and not caring for the presence of which they are standing on, you could understand where his frustration is coming from. I was trying to think of a modern day analogy of how we could feel how Jesus does. And so I need you to all do a favor for me and pretend that you are really big Bears fans, 
okay, for like five minutes. So if, if you aren't, I'm so sorry, but just go along with it. You're a really big Bears fan, and you've grown up in Chicago, and you just love the Bears everything. You have a bunch of Bears merchandise, and you go to Bears games whenever you can, and your whole life you've loved going to Soldier's Field where the Bears play. It's just like the, the pinnacle of where all the Bears fans meet. You all get hyped up to watch them maybe win, hopefully. We've always held on to hope that they could be good. And it, it's just fun to go and to be with other Bears fans and to know that all of you are in support of the same thing. Um, and it's, it's basically the sacred ground of the Bears. And so you buy tickets to go to a Bears-Packers game. Ooh, I know. A Bears-Packers game at Soldier's Field. So you got to go. You got to support your team when we're against our rivals. And so you go... Um, you give them your ticket, you make it through security, and you're about to walk into the stadium. And right outside the stadium, you see some Packers fans have set up tables where they're selling cheese heads. <laughs> and the, the Packers fans, that's what Packers fans wear because they're from Wisconsin and they're just weird like that. So they, they're there on your home turf of where the Bears are represented, and they're taking the audacity to say, I'm here as a Packers fan, and I'm gonna push my agenda over what this ground is for. And you better believe, I really think some Bears fans would go and flip their tables. I think that would happen. So that kind of frustration that you could maybe imagine if you could expand that 10,000-fold that of when Jesus goes, he has this understanding of what the temple is supposed to be, and it's his father's house. Not only is this just an understanding of what the temple is supposed to be, but this was made for my father, and you dare come here and make it a place for your prophet. That is where his frustration comes, and that is deeply important because whenever we hear this story of Jesus coming and flipping temples, or flipping tables at the temple, I think often we can say, well, Jesus got angry once, so I can be angry too. Whenever my coworker really annoys me, it's okay to be frustrated. Or if I've just been having a bad day and I stub my toe, well, Jesus flipped tables so I can say a curse word right now. It's just wrongly used often. And the, to, to say that we can never be angry is wrong because Jesus is clearly showing anger. And God, um, wrath and frustration and Anger towards sin is definitely attributed to him. However, don't be quick to dismiss your anger in the same category as Jesus. You must remember what his purpose for his anger is before you deem yourself worthy of feeling the same way. So, that being said, there is actually one other point I want to um, make uh, with this. Um, so, prophets to prophets. Very clever name, thank you. Um, this threat of um, the temple as holy ground, as a place for God um, and a place to be holy, that this idea of turning that into um, a scheme where you can make money and turning it into your own profit, that threat to the church has not died. This is not the only time in church history this has happened. And I will clarify that this is definitely not directed at this church at all. This is me just saying that this still exists today. And so I found just a few things online about different people and, and different organizations that use divinity and use holiness as a way to bring profit to themselves. And this thing is still alive today and we should be wary of it. 
Um, so an example is that the Vatican, which is where the Pope lives, and that's where um, bishops live and um, other members of the Catholic Church all live here. The Vatican is estimated to have about several billion dollars worth of gold within it. And it's not even being used for anything, so there's actual architecture of gold and there's things to make it look nice, but it's estimated they also just have a bunch of gold there. What they're doing with it, I don't know, but to me that doesn't feel like what Jesus really wants us to be doing as his holy people with money. If you have that much money just laying around um, and you're kind of just having it to flaunt that you have money, don't think that that's, that's what Jesus is wanting. Um, another example, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. They haven't even been in the game all that long. They're rather new, and they are the second biggest organization, richest or religious organization in the world, um, globally worth over $100 billion. And so if you've been to like a Mormon temple or um, seen like a Mormon service, you would know they're rather extravagant. They, they really go all out whenever they build something. And part of the reason of that, I think one of the reasons that they do have so much money is for members within the Mormon church, they really try to regulate your income as a member and they want to make sure you're tithing at least 15%, but honestly, they're going to push you more and more to give like 40 to 50%. And if you're not, then you yourself are sinning and uh, it's just they use a type of theology where you better be giving to our church. And it's abusive. Um, it, it's no longer an act of worship to give. It's an act of you better pay your dues to the church. Um, and so these are just two examples of using divinity as a way to pool more money in. But us evangelicals are not out of the way here. Um, I wanted to point out, so mega churches in America... Um, have averaged to make about $6.5 million a year pooling into their church. And um, this was, I, I found that in 2012, that's when that statistic was taken. I am sure that it has increased since then, which is absolutely crazy. And so I only bring this to our attention to let you know that this threat isn't gone. This isn't the one time Jesus didn't stop it here by flipping the tables. And when we know things about this, when we know that the church is mishandling money, that is something that we can feel frustrated about. That is something that we should know that this is no longer about holiness. This is no longer about praising God. This is about putting money in our own wallets. And that is just something to be aware about and um, um, to be wary of. If you visit a new church or you um, hear a pastor online and they're, they're up there wearing a Rolex and their nice suit and then they drive away in a Lamborghini, probably not the best thing going on there. So, yeah, that's, I just wanted to, to make a quick pit stop there. So, we're over the first hurdle of our biblical theology. Good job, guys. We are moving through. So, we understand what the temple is, but now let's remember what is being said here. This is the second step of our biblical theology. I want to read again um, what Jesus says, starting in verse 18. So, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? This is after he flipped the tables. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? 
But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is saying something massive here. He is portraying something about himself. And now that we have this understanding of what the temple was, it was the place where God and divinity dwelt among his people. It's where heaven and earth came together and where God's people could unify. Now Jesus is saying that he is the new temple. No longer are we going to be confined to this building, though that was part of the old covenant and it was righteously to do so. Now we are moving into a new covenant where there is going to be a new temple and that temple is me. Christ Jesus himself will be the temple where all of divinity and all humanity can be found in Christ. This is how John's gospel started at him as the word and this is what Jesus is saying right now. Um, and this moment, this transition between covenants, this there is an inauguration moment of this happening. Not only is there fulfillment, but this is just uh, the moment of the cutting of the red ribbon into a new covenant happens. In Matthew 27, 51, it reads, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And so this is moments after Jesus had died on the cross. Many miracles happen. But one of them is that the curtain, this massive curtain that has no explanation to how it was torn other than God's power, splits the curtain and says the Holy of Holies no longer is only accessible to a high priest once a year, but is accessible to all of you. I am freely opening up my spirit to you, found in this person, Jesus Christ. So I just love the, the connection there that it, it's like the moment of when a new building comes in and the mayor comes in and he has comedically sized scissors and he cuts a big red ribbon. That's kind of what's happening here. Jesus splits the curtain and he says, look, my spirit is now free to you um, if you have faith in Christ Jesus. He is the new temple. So that, that is step two of our biblical theology. And now for the last step that I want to cover Oh, look, I, I did that transition like a, like a curtain being torn. Yeah, very clever. <laughs> um, the last thing that I wanted us to talk about that I mentioned earlier is some of you may have thought of that. The Bible tells us that we are temples. Um, but Josh, you just went on this whole long thing telling us that God is the new temple, and, or Jesus is the new temple, and he declares so. So how does this really work? So I wanted to read what Paul is saying. So in 1 Corinthians 3, he writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now at first, this may seem contradictive. We were just being told, or Jesus just told us that he is the new temple. But what Paul is saying here is that we are being given the Holy Spirit into us. And if we remember with the functioning of the temple, it's where the divine is brought into the earthly, where, the cre where earthly things, where creation is brought into the heavenly realm, put together. And that is exactly what we become when the Holy Spirit enters into us. When we are regenerated and we are saved, we are given something divine, and therefore... We are like temples. We are vessels of the holy. Again, Paul goes on 
Later in chapter 6, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So knowing this, that we are supposed to be living as a temple, something that represents the divine because divinity is within us. Um, we also know this does not contradict what Jesus is saying. Though his spirit is within us and we are like temples, his spirit is also connecting us to the one true temple of God who is Christ himself. That is the thing that is saving us. And before I get to my last point, I want to clarify this can sound like um, what Paul is saying is since there, there's a spirit of holiness within you, you must be holy yourself. And you could take that to say, okay, now I need to worry about how holy my temple is. I need to, to get the sin out and to make sure that um, I'm just good enough for the Holy Spirit to enter and then I'll be good. Um, and that is a works-based understanding of making sure that if I'm just good enough, I can get into heaven and I'll have God's spirit with me. That is not what Paul is saying at all. Um, because you, that's, that's where the importance of understanding where Christ as the temple matters. Because the spirit within us is unifying us to the already perfectly holy temple of God, which is Christ. So your true holiness is found in Christ. And at the same time, we are going to be charged to make ourselves holy. Both are holding true. So... That is the full circle of a biblical theology that I wanted us to take away, to walk away from. So I hope when we read in our Bibles anything about temples and about um, what Christ is doing here, that this would be in the back of our minds. Um, as for application, I mostly wanted that. And then I, I've heard a few different sermons about addressing this topic. And a lot of people get to this point and they say, all right, now that you understand that you're a temple, let me give you the five easy ways you can become a holy temple. These are the tables you need to flip out of your life. And I just think that, that that's, kind, that's very hard to do for everyone that is listening to a message like this. And so I've joking, jokingly titled this How to Be Holy 101 because I can't stand up here and tell you, okay, the thing you need to do, you need to wake up and do 15 minutes of scripture reading, you need to do 15 minutes of prayer, you need to go on a run and drink a glass of water. All of those things are great to do. I would say very healthy if you, you want to start doing that. But I can't give you a regiment as the people of God, as all individual temples who carry divinity within themselves. I can't tell you how to get rid of the clutter in your life, how to make yourself holy. But Paul does the same thing again. He carries this out in 2 Corinthians. And the, this is the, the heart we are supposed to have when we are told to be temples to make ourselves pure and holy. He says, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And that's, that's simply it, that we are supposed to try to be holy and get rid of what contaminates our temple within ourselves. And I wanted to share another quote um, this is from R.C. Sproul in the book. Uh, he has a book called The Holiness of God. Um, it's a very good book. It does a great job talking about the characteristic of God's holiness. Um, just within himself, it talks about Jesus as holy, as separate from everything else, and it talks about holiness and how it relates to us. Um, but he puts it as this. To be spiritual has only one real purpose. 
It is a means to an end, not the end itself. The goal of all spiritual exercise must be the goal of righteousness. God calls us to be holy. Christ sets the priority of the, but seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. The goal is righteousness. And so, at the end of the sermon, I can't tell you the, the exact thing you, that you need to do, the spiritual disciplines that you need to pick up, but just keep in your mind that you have been called a temple of God. And there, there's a type of response we should have when hearing this. One is a deep-rooted joy that we no longer have to go to a temple, but God has freely opened up his spirit to be given to you, that you are the new holy of holies within yourself. God will dwell within you, which is unfathomably huge and amazing for us to be given. But two, you are also deemed with a deep responsibility that if you are going to carry around that divinity, if you are going to be a representation of what is holy and what is good, take it seriously. Don't say, okay, I'm saved now and carry on with the sin in your life, but it is your responsibility to try and find what is cluttering up the temple of your heart and of your soul. And knowing that, I hope going into future weeks, into this coming week, um, there is both a sincerity of our faith, um, of our understanding of what uh, Jesus has done for us and knowing that we are to live and follow him, but also a great joyfulness that Jesus has done this for us, that he is the new temple for us on our behalf, and also he has given us his spirit. Um, so if you could bow your heads with me and pray. Lord, we just, as your body, um, thank you so much for giving us your spirit. Uh, we know that it was bought with a price, that we were once the merchants selling at the, at the temple. We were the ones who were defiling your holiness. But you went through, you knew what holiness was, you are holiness, and you had paid the way on the cross in order for us to enter into the Holy of Holies. Lord, we thank you for your spirit that you live with us now, that you speak to us from within on how to live correctly, uh, that you give us a joy that nothing else in the world could really give, that nothing could satisfy. And so, Lord, uh, we just going into this coming week pray um, that your spirit would speak within us, that um, the things in our lives that we should be working on, whether it's a consistent sin in our lives or whether it's um, just a person that we need to talk to, whether it's spending more time in your word or spending more time in prayer, whatever it may be, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would convict us to do so and that we would be able to fight the battle and be able to make ourselves more holy on your behalf, to make ourselves more worthy, uh, to hold your spirit and to give you praise. And so, Lord, we just thank you again for your word, uh, and we pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.